you know, consumer demand for your product is always the foundation. In fact, you can make an argument that the American consumer needs the restaurant industry. I believe that the dining behavior that this pandemic has brought out in consumers isn't going to change when it's safe to go to a restaurant again. From what we eat to where we eat to where we buy it, the pandemic has dramatically accelerated the future of food. The consumers want personalized convenience, high quality food when they want it, where they want it. They want variety. Not everybody in the family wants to eat the same thing. So the industry is really struggling with how do we, how do you deliver that? There's not that many grocery startups. The reality is that if you look at, you know, behind the scenes, where are investments going in terms of innovating in the grocery industry? There's not that much. Welcome to another edition of 2025, Tomorrow Today. I'm John Cook, co-founder of GeekWire. And I'm Jordan Voss, Senior Vice President at Northern Trust. In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the future of restaurants and grocery stores. We've again assembled an expert panel to offer their insights about all facets of food, from grab-and-go, to ghost kitchens, to robot pizza makers. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. So let's begin our journey into the future of food with one of my favorite restaurants, Seattle's Revel. The award-winning modern Asian eatery has earned national acclaim for its bold, unexpected flavors and classical cuisine. Chef Rachel Yang and her husband, Safe, co-founded Revel along with Seattle's Jewel, Trove, and Portland's Revelry. Needless to say, it's been an extremely challenging time for Yang and her Relay restaurant group. She says the pandemic has been an existential threat to her business and the restaurant industry and forced her to make dramatic changes. So it was a big learning experience for all of us. Um, obviously, we had pivoted into takeout heavily, and that's been really a huge learning curve and learning experience for us because of the fact that, number one, we learned that there are a lot of positiveness from um, doing the takeout. You know, you are way more streamlined. Your labor cost is way down. Um, the way you have to invest into a physical appearance or daily upkeeps and daily uh, things that you're doing for the restaurant has to be can be streamlined uh, extremely. However, that also came with a lot of difficulties because we had to make sure that the products that we are selling at the restaurants can travel well, can plate really easily. Um, so we had to not quite say compromise, but to adapt to the new reality of like, okay, if, it, if this is the, uh, the medium that we have to work with, how do we change it, like the styles and the food that we're doing in order to make sure it can be successful? Because at the end, no matter what it is, no matter what your intention is, it's all about what customers see when they open up the, the lid from a to-go container. And like nowadays, you know, when things are a little bit of hybrid and, you know, you do some takeout, you do some diners. I mean, the biggest thing that we are learning every single day, I mean, knowing how to make your practice in virtual world. The brick and mortar restaurant is all about location, location, location. And like you're learning very quickly how to do that in virtual world. It is really hard to grab everyone's attention to make them think of you to, oh, like I should order here tonight. I should get their takeout. While Yang holds out hope for a better future, many of her competitors and colleagues have fallen by the wayside. The National Restaurant Association recently reported 17% of America's restaurants permanently closed this year, over 110,000 restaurants across the country. The devastation has touched all facets of the restaurant business. 
gone are established and acclaimed institutions, both big and small. And 37% of those surveyed by the Restaurant Association said it's unlikely they'll be open six months from now unless the government steps in with a restaurant or small business relief plan. Jonathan Mays is the editor-in-chief at Restaurant Business and host of the podcast, A Deeper Dive. He recently authored an optimistic outlook headlined, Five Reasons to be Bullish on Restaurants' Future. May says despite closures, bankruptcies, and uncertainty, the industry has surprisingly proven to be more resilient than expected. In the midst of a historic pandemic, people have really pushed to go back to restaurants. If you look at sales numbers starting in mid-April, we started to see a, a pretty steady increase in industry sales. And as states reopened their dining rooms, people people returned. I mean, in fact, at places like Olive Garden and uh, Outback Steakhouse and places like that, the only thing that's really been holding them back has been capacity limit. And the point is that people really like going out to restaurants and they've proved that this year. That is always in any industry, you know, consumer demand for your product is always the foundation. And there is always a considerable demand for the product. In fact, you can make an argument that the, that the American consumer in 2020 needs the restaurant industry. The restaurant industry has gone from, in just a few short months, from a scenario in which we were oversupplied with restaurants into which now you can make a very strong argument that we're undersupplied. You know, right now there is sort of this undersupply of restaurants um, because so many restaurants have closed, unfortunately. Um, I mean, look, I mean, I don't like it to see restaurants close. I mean, it's jobs, it's somebody's livelihood. Uh, and, you know, and then there's also the impact that restaurant had on a neighborhood. We have lost some really, really good restaurants, some very old restaurants, restaurants that have been around since the Civil War, restaurants. Uh, that were among the the largest single restaurants in the U.S. in terms of sales, but fundamentally it reduced supply and got rid of the single biggest concern that we had going into the pandemic. And now there's this undersupply going. And once this pandemic ends, to me, you know, it really is going to sort of set it up for for a lot more growth going into the future. Veteran award-winning restaurant owner Brian Canlis remains hopeful as well but acknowledges it'll be notably different from the past decades at his family's acclaimed Seattle restaurant. Canlis has been at the forefront of innovation, from pioneering new takeout options to offering yurt dining and even cooking classes. And at a recent GeekWire roundtable, he predicted a future for fine dining that is far less formal and far more comfortable. I think at the very least, I think the world of chef as God and guest as um, someone who goes into the chef's temple and bows down and has a 30 course tasting menu and spends a lot of, I think that is going to become less important. I think, I hope it does. I hope the table becomes more about spending time with people in a restorative environment and less about stroking the egos of people trying to create fancy food. And, and that's kind of where fine dining started to go. And we've been resistant to that. And I think, I hope restaurants become places that is about the specialness of going out again and being together with people. That's my hope. Maybe if I dream it, it'll come true. But uh, I see that. What I hear from people out there is I just want to be with people again around a table. I don't hear people saying, I just really need some foie gras, right? Um, and so that I, I hope that's where the industry goes, back to being places about community, 
and relationships. But even if or when dining in a restaurant becomes a big thing again post-pandemic, experts say the dramatic rise of delivery and ghost kitchens will continue to accelerate over the next five years. For those unfamiliar with the term, ghost kitchens are places where companies can rent space and time to prepare food for delivery or distribution without a public-facing establishment. So in the same evening, one ghost kitchen might be preparing delivery meals for three separate restaurant names at the same time. That spawned a new generation of virtual restaurants across the country who make their menus available online for delivery by one of the dozens of companies that have flourished during the pandemic, like Uber Eats, Grubhub, and DoorDash. It's also allowed brick-and-mortar restaurants to branch out and create multiple brands with differing cuisines available for delivery or takeout only, all prepared in the same kitchen. A new report from Euromonitor Global predicts the ghost kitchen market could eventually capture 25% of all dine-in business. And the industry could be worth $1 trillion within the next decade. And investors are, pardon the pun, putting their money where their mouths are. This year alone, a number of cloud kitchen companies have landed multi-million dollar venture capital investments. Among the biggest, ex-Uber CEO Travis Kalanick's secretive cloud kitchen raised $20 million in September. In October, Los Angeles-based Ordermark landed a whopping $120 million deal. And in the biggest bet of the year, Miami-based Reef Technology scored $700 million to expand its network of ghost kitchens across the country. The companies already operate thousands of kitchens nationwide, and their numbers are expected to skyrocket with the new dollars. Veteran food and tech journalist and editor Kristen Holly has extensively covered the rise of the ghost kitchen industry. Holly, the editor of the Expedite newsletter, sees ghost kitchens as the most disruptive force in recent years. It's a big deal in how big it's gotten so quickly. The bigger deal is how big it can get. When you look at off-premises operations as a percentage of restaurant business, it's already huge, right? And that includes the drive-through, which is the big one, obviously. But delivery and takeout has been slowly creeping on drive-through's dominance and taking a bigger share. So when you think about what, void a ghost kitchen or a virtual kitchen could fill, it could fill literally any eating opportunity that isn't inside a physical restaurant, which is a lot of them. I think about them in sort of two buckets. I think about them in there's the cloud kitchens and the reefs that are in the real estate business. And there's, you know, order mark next bite. Um, there's a couple of other virtual dining concepts is another that are in the software and sort of like IP game. So there are companies that are buying up real estate, whether that's parking lots like Reef or uh, otherwise underused buildings like cloud kitchens. Those are real estate companies, in my opinion. And then you have the order marks and the VDCs that are creating brands that exist virtually um, and not getting into real estate at all. There's a place for both, but I think the longer we get into this pandemic and the longer it takes to get out of this, the space is it's it's becoming a smaller space, right? Like it's an easier proposition today at this moment to tell a restaurateur that investing money and time into a ghost concept will net them profit. Six months from now, perhaps when people are back to searching for experiential restaurants, that could change. Um, but I believe that the dining behavior that this pandemic has uh, brought out in consumers isn't going to change when it's safe to go to a restaurant again. So I think that's the that's the worry that a brick and mortar restaurateur should have that isn't paying attention to this is just 
what portion of the of their diners are being taken away by virtual concepts that can be spun up very quickly. Um, as someone who loves restaurants and the restaurant experience, I get a little bit nervous about it just because these concepts are well-funded already and there are giant companies behind them already. Uh, it's not some grassroots thing that's happening. So I do worry about what will, ha- will continue to happen to independent restaurants uh, because they are already sort of struggling to survive in challenging conditions. Then there's the whole delivery business, which has become a critical lifeline and a booming industry of its own during the pandemic. DoorDash saw its stock shoot up 86% on the day of its initial public offering this month, while its competitors continue to cash in on our insatiable appetites. Companies like DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats regularly tout the benefits of their businesses for consumers and restaurants alike. But for a lot of eateries, it's somewhat of a Faustian bargain. On one hand, the tech companies provide a platform to easily connect customers. But on the other hand, they exact a pretty price for it. Restaurant delivery services take an average of 25% of an order as commission paid by the restaurant on top of the delivery fee or tip paid by the consumer. And food writer Kristen Holly worries what all these developments mean for the long-term survival of the restaurants she loves. And I'm not anti-tech. I, I want to be very clear about that. I think technology can, uh, I, I've been writing about restaurant technology for eight years. I think it's very exciting. I think it's a very exciting time for restaurant tech. But I also think, you know, with all of that excitement comes great responsibility to small businesses and to the people that are employed by small businesses in the restaurant industry um, to not kill their livelihoods. I think that I've become less excited about the the future of restaurants in the last couple of months just because the news has been so bad. Um, I think the thing that I find promising is that there is increased awareness from consumers about how restaurants operate and how restaurant technology companies operate. Um, I think that a year ago, most people didn't understand how big DoorDash was or that they had a white label delivery operation or that they were partnered with like Chipotle and all of the big companies. They only saw what was on their phone, right? Like typing in like DoorDash. Um, I think that I find that to be the most exciting thing that because of consumer interest in restaurants and restaurant technology, these companies are having to take into account what the dining public actually wants versus what they think they want. And I think that's been a big problem in Silicon Valley generally is building products that they think the restaurant industry needs um, versus building the things that the restaurant industry actually tells them that they need. But whether it's dining in or ordering out, one area all restaurant owners have always struggled with is labor. Before the pandemic, eateries in Seattle and elsewhere constantly scrambled to find, afford, and keep good help. And as restaurant operators search for every efficiency possible, could automation or robotics become more common in the kitchen of the future? Seattle-based Picnic is betting on it. The company has cooked up an automated pizza-making system that can crank out 300 individually customized, high-quality pizzas an hour. And CEO Clayton Wood says pizza is just the starting point to a whole new world. The food industry, in a lot of ways, has gotten pulled along with other consumer trends. Consumers are wanting things to be more convenient. They're wanting more personalization. They're Because entertainment options are expanding at home, they're less likely to want to go out if they can be entertained by streaming services on their couch. Um, so the restaurants were kind of kicking and screaming, trying to figure out how to deliver that convenience. And delivery and carryout has been growing tremendously. And uh, I think all the ways of preparing food 
and delivering food and customizing food, all of those are tremendous opportunities because the consumers want personalized, convenience, high quality food when they want it, where they want it. They want variety. Not everybody in the family wants to eat the same thing. So the industry is really struggling with how do we, how do you deliver that? And uh, frankly, the solutions aren't there yet. There's only a handful of automation solutions or technology solutions that actually deal with food prep. Most of the technology innovation that's happened over the last five years has been IT systems, uh, handling delivery orders, uh, more efficient uh, point of sale systems, kiosks, uh, other digital software solutions. Very few actually touching the food because that's a really hard problem. Um, but as now that there's real demand and there's real interest in this, we see lots of companies tackling that, which we love to see. We think it's really where the action is. And as the food preparation is uh, more automated and can deliver on that promise of convenience and quality, then it's going to get more and more ubiquitous, you know, all the way to, you know, you look at Star Trek and the, the food replicator where they push a button and, you know, steak dinner with a glass of wine pops out. Um, that's, I think, you know, I've, I've had that slide in, in some presentations I've done. And I, I think that's, that's sort of a vision of where things are going is that people want when they want, when they want it. And it's up to the technology developers to figure out how do you do that? How do you, how do you prepare a quality meal in volume and, and do it quickly and on demand? But does that mean robots will one day take over restaurants? Hardly. Wood argues that while some mundane tasks like chopping vegetables can be replaced by automation, the robots can actually free up people to better interact with customers. And surveys show customer satisfaction scores actually improve with automation. We've definitely seen just over the last few months the, the stigma, if you will, of automation uh, people concerned about automation being a job killer, automation being sort of inherently a, a bad thing or a scary thing. A lot of that has evaporated. I mean, there's still people who have that concern, and it's a, it, it can be a legitimate concern in certain circumstances. But uh, we see our automation as enabling job creation because we're enabling restaurants to operate and employ people and feed people. And where in other circumstances, they might not even be able to operate. If you think about it, it's easy to say the word robot and you imagine some humanoid automated uh, machine. Our system is not humanoid. It, it, it looks more like an appliance. Uh, someone said it looks like a, a kitchen-sized iPhone. So it, it's very benign and, and safe to work around. And, and we find that it, it really doesn't create a problem. And, but you think about other kitchen equipment, which is also automated, you know, mixers, dishwashers, uh, ovens. It, there's lots of automation in the kitchen already. This is just another level of automation that's uh, taking their place of a job that used to be complex enough only a person could do it. Now a system can do it, doesn't take the human away, but enables the human to do other things because making pizza is tedious. Even if you're really experienced at it, even if you're really good at it. Automated systems like Picnic also offer another critical advantage to restaurant owners operating on razor thin margins, far better data and cost controls. It's one of the reasons why restaurants have been hard to run. It's been hard to get data on exactly what's going on. How much data, how much food did you use? Why did you use it? Uh, we've talked to customers who say that if they take their order sheet from the day and then they look at their inventory and they try to match up, you know, which pizzas were ordered, how much, how much food did we consume? If that actually aligns, there must be a mistake because they're just not that good. They can't track it that closely. Data and new technologies are critical to another key aspect of our food chain, grocery stores. Grocers operate on tiny profit margins. 
yet have had little insights into how much to actually stock on their shelves. That's resulted in a huge problem, food spoilage and waste. Stores commonly throw out around 10% of what they buy. It's obviously bad for business and bad for the environment. Seattle-based Shelf Engine is working to change that. The company uses AI and analytics to help stores better track their inventory of highly perishable foods and forecast how much to order and carry. CEO and co-founder Stefan Kolb says the grocery business is desperate for innovation on a number of fronts. There's a couple things that are uh, moving in the grocery space right now a lot of people are thinking about. The first one is um, consumer behavior. So what happens if you know, um, there's a lot more people shopping online. And what if there is a different way of actually shopping within the store? Um, the second one is uh, what's actually happening with products. And there are a lot more fresh products being introduced into uh, grocery. And there's a lot more of an experience being introduced to grocery. And so these two make a very uh, interesting push uh, towards actually forecasting orders much better. Uh, the first one is when people are buying online, like say they're buying from Instacart, when products are out of stock, it's a really big problem. It's You could arguably say for Instacart, it's their number one problem. Um, and so being able to have products in stock is really important. But now here's this reverse problem, which is that grocery stores are starting to stock a lot more fresh goods. Like if you look at the original grocery store um, in, in the United States, which is Piggly Wiggly in 1916, there are no fresh goods there just canned goods, uh, boxes of, of products. And today, 60% of the store is highly perishable categories, which makes it way harder to order for. You're not just doing inventory management anymore. You're talking about products that have, you know, one to three day shelf lives. And that's gonna create some really high levels of spoilage. So you have these two major uh, vectors that are essentially moving at a pretty fast rate uh, for grocery. So the question is, okay, well, what's that gonna do? Um, holistically, it's going to push everything on the back end very quickly, which means what needs to happen in terms of logistics, what needs to happen in terms of demand forecasting, um, all these different pieces that go all the way up the supply chain are very important pieces to be able to serve that next level. You're already seeing a lot of the breakdowns happening um, right now, which is you know high food waste. And second, you're seeing like an Instacart where you know one out of 10 items they can't get in the store because it's out of stock. Um, those are the real breakdowns that we're going to see that are going to probably push the industry uh, to innovate quicker. Well, what's surprising is how much U.S. grocers lag behind many other countries when it comes to innovation. In my research for this podcast episode, the consensus is we're at least a decade behind in terms of innovation on both the business and customer sides of the grocery industry. And Kolb concurs. We have a very commoditized market um, in, in the U.S., uh, which means that, you know, grocers are fairly obsessed about what the other grocer is charging um, for that same good. But here's the other thing that I'll share that's maybe a little bit of a tangent, but I think is true to speak to why we haven't had as much innovation, is that um, there's not that many grocery startups, right? There's a few of the prominent ones that are consumer facing, you can think about, like we'll take Instacart as an example again, or Postmates. But the reality is that if you look at, you know, behind the scenes, where are investments going in terms of innovating on the grocery industry? There's not that much. But big changes are coming. And not surprisingly, Amazon is at the forefront of a lot of those changes here in the U.S. The company has been rolling out a series of innovations in its convenience and branded grocery stores, as well as in Whole Foods, the national upscale grocery chain 
it bought back in 2017. Among the most notable developments is its grab-and-go technology. Customers simply swipe their app when they walk in, and whatever they grab is automatically charged to their account without having to go through the checkout. But Amazon is far from alone on that front. Seattle-based retail pioneer and former Amazon executive Nadia Shorabora says the pandemic has dramatically accelerated innovation across the industry globally. She's seen it firsthand in Russia, where she's leading a massive transformation of the grocery business as a board member with that country's largest chain. We're experimenting with many different things. We're experimenting with cashierless store, where a customer comes in and uh, does everything on her own, and then uh, he or she just walks out. And uh, we have a number of those stores already opened up, and... Uh, Russian customers love that experience. Uh, we're experimenting with much better uh, check-in and check-out and face recognition where we know everything the customer is doing and ability to know when we don't have a product on the shelf and uh, ability to give tasks, intelligent tasks to our associates so they know what to do and what to focus on. The ability to help the store director to run uh, the store much more efficient. Uh, a lot of innovation in how we staff our stores, etc. So there is innovation in many different aspects of running the store, as well as a lot of innovation in the back in the, supply, in the grocery supply chain. Shoppers can expect dramatic changes in their in-store experience in the next five years. Shurabura says they've already implemented a number of things in their Russian stores we'll inevitably see here in the U.S., sooner or later. No, so we're playing with a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, you know, you come in and uh, we have an aquarium with a fresh fish. And uh, we also have um, a very interesting machinery which cooks that fish and smokes it. So when you come into our Russian store, it smells so good that it makes you so hungry uh, because it's a smoked fish and so good. And you can get it hot directly from the, um, you know, fr from the equipment. And uh, um, we look at a lot of um, experiences where it's ready to eat. So you can come in and um, eat in a cafe or, um, you know, have a meal right there in the store or pick what you like, which is already cooked and take it with you or um, pick a food which is almost ready to eat, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, uh, we bake our own bread. We experience, we experience with uh, different bread baking so you come in and it smells like tasty bread so uh, there are a lot of customer experiences on how you um, come to the store and you get hungry in minutes uh, but that we also work a lot on getting rid of all the muck of shopping where you don't have to worry about the checkouts or you know other unpleasant experiences as we consider the future of our food, one big question is what happens at the intersection of grocery and restaurants? With so many grocers offering fully prepared meals, whole roast chickens, hot food bars, dining areas, will they take an even bigger bite out of the restaurant business? Kalb wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, you're poking at something very interesting, um, which is if you look at actually the part that was uh, very painful for grocery during the pandemic, was that all the hot bars, um, these grocery stores closed. All these food service parts of the grocery stores closed. So you're absolutely right that we're starting to aggregate more and more pieces that we would get elsewhere. Um, so, you know, it used to be that you'd go to the butcher to get your meat. You didn't go to the grocery store, right? Um, same thing for your cheese. You'd go see your cheesemonger, right? 
Um, but now all those parts are part of the store, just like essentially we have a restaurant now that's now part of a grocery store, right? Um, and the part that really hurt grocery um, was everything that was happening in Delhi and hot Delhi. Um, that was quite painful uh, in the pan pandemic uh, for grocery. So we, we imagined that uh, during the pandemic, actually the sales grew uh, significantly and they did. Um, but for certain categories in, in, um, uh, in the deli, they actually shrank uh, significantly, which was quite painful. Um, so I think your question is valid, which is what happens now, um, given kind of we see the next five to 10 years, um, you know, like does the grocery store start doing everything um, so we don't even go to a restaurant anymore? It's a little bit harder for me, I think, to, uh, you know, predict on that side of things. Although I will tell you that the deli and the hot bar at the grocery store is very profitable. Um, it's continuing to grow and grocers are investing a lot strategically to grow that part of the store. I wouldn't be surprised if one day you go into a Whole Foods and half of the Whole Foods is actually um, a kind of a, a dining experience um, rather than a traditional grocery store. But Picnic CEO Clayton Wood predicts there's room for everything from full service restaurants to delivery to grab and go grocers. This is really where I see the restaurant, the food industry going. It's, it's gonna go in two directions. One is dining rooms are not gonna go away. They're they're hard to use today. That'll come back though. But people will go to dining rooms because they wanna have a great experience and a great ambiance and you know have a whole whole experience of eating a meal in, the, in this setting. Um, if you just want a meal, you just want food, you're just trying to satisfy your hunger, you're trying to take food home to your family. There's no reason to go to a, di to a dining room or to a restaurant that has a bunch of ambiance. And so there are way more efficient models for delivering high quality food to you for that secondary case. And we really see a bifurcation in that commercial food production to high efficiency, high quality on one side, and then high experience, high quality on the other side. And the in-betweens are probably gonna uh, start to disappear. So there you have it some really interesting insights and thoughts on the future of food from restaurants to grocery. Coming up in our next episode, we're going to take an in-depth look at the future of where and how we work. Don't forget, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Cook, co-founder of GeekWire. And I'm Jordan Voss, Senior Vice President with Northern Trust. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon on the next episode of 2025 Tomorrow Today. Take care. 2025 Tomorrow Today is produced and edited by Josh Kearns and Cypress Point Podcasting for GeekWire Studios. It's intended for informational purposes only and is not to be taken as investment advice. There may be some overlap between businesses mentioned and the holdings of Northern Trust clients, our hosts, and panelists. Music